0: Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Like always, I want to thank all of you for listening, especially all of those new listeners. Australia, Germany, I see you out there, Texas coming in nowhere this week. You can show your support with a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to us on, or you can stop by our Patreon page and support us with as little as $1 a month, like they say, dollar make you holla, or you can drop a one-time donation in our Venmo account. Links down below. Every little bit counts as we're working on adding a second, more comedic podcast. Now, when doing the research for this week's podcast, I realized that you couldn't really talk about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love without talking about Timothy Leary and The Weather Underground as well. So this will be a three-part series about the counterculture war of the late 60s and early 70s. Some people will argue that I'm leaving some key players out, So I do plan to do future episodes about Ira the Unicorn Einhorn, a vocal face of counterculture that ended up on the run for decades for murder. Dr. Richard Alpart, who became known as Ram Dass and inspired multiple cults, and the Black Panthers, who intersected with the Underground and Larry, but were fighting a very, very different culture war of their own. So today we will explore the brotherhood of eternal love. In 1960, two promising young psychologists at Harvard by the name of Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert began to explore the effects of psychotropic substances on the human mind. They reasoned that psychology is the study of the mind, including its relationship to the brain, body, and environment. Psychology, they argued, has a legitimate interest in how cognition, perception, and emotions are affected by mind-altering substances. At the time, the possible dangers of researching such things were not well known. Shortly after Leary's arrival at Harvard, he and Alpert started the Harvard Cyclobin Project. Cyclobin is an anthogenic hallucinogen which naturally occurs within certain species of mushrooms. Leary and Alpert sought to document its effects on human consciousness by administering it to volunteer subjects and recording their real-time descriptions of the experience. At the time of Leary and Alpert's research at Harvard, neither LSD or cyclobin were illegal in the United States. By 1962, various faculty members and administrators at Harvard were concerned about the safety of Leary and Alpert's research subjects and critiqued the rigor of their unorthodox methodology. In particular, the fact that the research conducted their investigations when they, too, were high. Leary and Alpert's colleagues challenged the scientific merit of the research as well as the seemingly cavalier attitude in which it was carried out. In other words, poorly controlled conditions and a non-random selection of subjects. Editorials printed in the Harvard Crimson newspaper accused Alpert and Leary of not merely researching the psych- psychotropic drugs, but actively promoting their recreational use. Leary and Albert insisted on the scientific purpose of what they were doing and agreed to policies intended to protect their subjects, including prohibition on participation by undergraduate students. Initially, Leary and Alpert only used volunteers, if not fully informed graduate students in their research. However, in the spring of 1963, Harbour was forced to fire Alpert after he gave Cyclopin to an undergraduate student off campus. Leary was soon also fired from the university and the Cyclopin project came to an end. Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, they were in a bad shape in the summer of 1963. But then along came Peggy Hitchcock, who who Leary introduced to LSD the year before, and with whom he also had a brief affair. She asked her older brother, Billy, if anyone was staying in the boarded up mansion on his recently purchased cattle ranch. He said no, and so Albert, Leary, and she went up there. They thought it was fabulous, especially since the rent was only a dollar a year. Now, William Mellon Hitchcock was not your typical asset head. And when I say Mellon, yes, I am talking about those Carnegie Mellon, billionaire Mellons. Billy, as he was called, was a tall, charming, blonde stockbroker in his 20s who worked at Lehman Brothers. He was heir to one of the largest fortunes in the country. He had a trust fund that lined his pockets with $15,000 a week to do with what he pleased. Now, $15,000 a week, if you get for inflation, that's got to be close to $50,000, $60,000 a week now. Billy thought he'd be smart for him to invest half of a million dollars in 25,000 acres of land two hours north of New York City. That became known as Millbrook. In September of 1963, Albert, Larry, and Ralph Metzner, one of their colleagues from Harvard, moved in along with 30 or so of their followers. Along with the residents came a rotating cast of celebrities. There were jazz musicians like Charles Mingus and Maynard Ferguson, as well as Allen Ginsberg, and several members of Andy Warhol's factory drove up when they wanted a break from New York City. And then Billy. Ever in the background, never quite front and center, never quite fitting in, but always around. Billy failed to see any of the contradictions between his worldly and psychedelic pursuits. Some of those at Millbrook felt that he didn't fit in and hadn't broken on through to the other side. Others suspected that he had bad intentions. I mean, why after all would someone who was so entrenched in the establishment be so eager to support people who were trying to tear it down? Larry, Alpert, and Metzner were looking for insight into the ultimate nature of reality and to systemize and program the psychedelic experience to reach the same type of insight and consistency. To that end, Leary, Alpert, and Metzner published the Psychedelic Review and held workshops on how psychedelics psychedelics worked twice a month that were much more sober than the normal shenanigans that went on at Millbrook. They also then wrote The Psychedelic Experience in 64, a trip manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But as months passed, Millbrook started to lose its scientific bearings and the scene grew wilder and wilder as word got out to local colleges along the East Coast. For Leary and his followers, the Buddhist insight that catches hold by about the fifth acid trip, even the magical paradise of Millbrook was never going to last forever and it started to turn into creeping fears of imminent busts by police. Those fears were realized around 2 a.m. on Sunday, April 17th, 1966, when a newly appointed assistant district attorney, G. Gordon Liddy, and yeah, it's that G. Gordon Liddy, and you're going to hear more about him in the next episode, led a nighttime raid on the Millbrook estate, search warrant in hand, It resulted in the climax of several months of surveillance. Liddy and 22 officers busted down the main door without knocking, even though it was open and unlocked, like all the doors on the property. They found 29 adults and 12 children, most of whom were asleep. Once they searched the premises, they found a very small amount of cannabis, but no acid or any other drugs. They confiscated Larry's son's high school chemistry set women were strip searched and asked whether they had intercourse on the premises. Yes, the dream was definitely over. From that point on, Millbrook was under constant surveillance. Police set up roadblocks around the premises, and anyone who wanted to enter had to be strip searched. Many of the regulars departed to see, and they were replaced by strung out kids getting into harder and harder drugs. The scene at Millbrook ultimately collapsed just as LSD went mainstream. And this, this is very important. Leary, Ginsburg, and other Millbrook regulars led a human beat-in at Golden State Park in the January of 1967. It was when the Hate ashbury counterculture uh, scene was in full swing. California Governor Ronald Reagan decried the demon of the drug LSD and soon-to-be President Nixon? Well, we'll talk about him in the next episode and his hard-on for Leary. Demand for acid was extremely high, and Billy Hitchcock, enterprising as ever since an opportunity. He introduced Nicholas Sand, a Millbrook regular and aspiring chemist, to Tim Scully, a whiz kid's chemist from Berkeley who newly arrived on the drug scene. With Billy bankrolling the operation, the two chemists moved to California, set up a lab, and synthesized 3.6 million hits of orange sunshine. 250 micrograms of pure bliss that hit the San Francisco streets right in time for the summer of love. Hitchcock soon followed his latest venture into the Bay Area, but not before evicting everyone from the estate. And who do you think they approached to move what would become the best-selling LSD in the world? The Brotherhood of Eternal Love. The Brotherhood started when John Griggs, a former BYU student, who would become known as the hippie messiah, heard about a movie producer who had a stash of LSD. Seeing as LSD was $35 to $50 a hit, John and his friends decided to steal it at gunpoint. After one hit, that first time, John, who had a wife Carol and a child, felt so full of love that he decided he had to make it his mission to share the feelings of love and enlightenment with as many people as possible some of whom were a college student named Michael Randall, brothers Ricky and Ron Bevan, and a small-time pot smuggler named Travis Ashbrook. They came together in Medesca Canyon to find spiritual enlightenment. Travis Ashbrook recalled in an interview. I was pretty much an atheist until I started taking psychedelics. So they decided to form a church and spread the enlightenment. At first, it worked like a pyramid scheme with each mother telling their friends and their friends telling their friends and so on and so forth. But LSD was expensive, and so that was where the pot smuggling came in. Remember, security was not half as tight as it is now. The biggest market was in New York, where pot and hash was three times the price that it was on the West Coast. So they would just fill suitcases with pot, board a plane, give them fake names to check in, as no ID was required at the time. And when the offloading of that for three times the value in New York was successful, the group moved on to smuggling things in vehicle paneling like you see in the movies, but doing it with entire VW vans filled with pot and hash. Ron Bevan was an engineer, so it was very easy for him to design all these hidden panels and hidey holes. The money, was then funneled back into the production and distribution of LSD so they could give it to people at next to nothing. The Brotherhood's most ambitious score was in a trip to the Middle East to get hash. They knew that there was something called Primo out there. Travis Ashbrook and Ricky Bevan flew to Germany, bought a car, and planned to drive to Nepal. On the way, they picked up a couple of European hippies who told them that the best hash was in Afghanistan, and most importantly, it was only $4 a kilo. They easily found a connection once they finally made it to Afghanistan. Their original plan was to get 10 kilos. They ended up with 50. That's a little over 110 pounds of hash for $200. Mind you, drug possession was punishable by death in the Middle East at the time, but they just went to a market bought a whole bunch of antique musical instruments, packed the insides of them full of hash, and shipped them to Ricky brother Ron. Ron was terrified when he found out there was a drug shipment waiting for him at customs. He was completely convinced he was gonna get busted. He got there, they opened the box, and cited him for shipping animal skins, which at the time was illegal, but didn't even give the instruments a second glance and just handed them over to Ron without question. Soon, after to hide their drug money, they decided to move to Laguna Beach, which at the time was an artist colony and not the epitome of white privilege it has become today. There, they opened a shop called the Mystic Arts World, a combination bookstore, art gallery, and all-around hangout. Close by, they set up a psychedelic community nicknamed Dodge due to the fact that there was so much dealing going on, but a complete lack of law enforcement, making it like the Wild West. The Brotherhood infamously spread and more and more people flocked to Laguna to be part of their movement. This is the point in which Scully and Sand reach out to the Brotherhood. Before they created Orange Sunshine, all their LSD was sold by the Hell's Angels and the Brotherhood delivered. They were able to get orange sunshine distributed all over the world. Just to give an idea of how well known this drug is, SNL did a skit about it in its first season. This was the point when Rolling Stone did an article on the Brotherhood and labeled them the Hippie Mafia. This was also the time that Timothy Leary came to Laguna. While the Brotherhood looked up to Leary, many weren't really comfortable around him anymore. Remember, many of these men were married, and Leary kept hitting on their wives behind their backs. He also brought tons of heat down with him, because remember, Nixon had a hard-on for him. The first thing that happened shortly after Leary showed up, Mystic Arts World got firebombed. The Brotherhood decided that it was a total wash and shifted their focus to communal living while they were still smuggling. Meanwhile, Leary gets arrested in Laguna. The first thing he does is contact the Brotherhood and ask them to break him out of prison. Because yes, that's totally what normal people do when they get arrested. The Brotherhood begins planning the breakout when tragedy strikes them. On the night of August 3rd, 1969, John Griggs, the founder of the Brotherhood, someone who had become known as the hippie messiah, ate cyclopin crystals that a connection had brought from Switzerland. In true Brotherhood fashion, he ate as much of the crystals as he could. He then went to his teepee to await the results. After 20 minutes, he ran out and shouted to the others, don't take the cyclopin, you're gonna overdose. His wife, Carol, was finally able to force other members to call an ambulance, as they were all convinced and scared that they were going to get arrested. But even though they were able to get him to the hospital, he died later that night. This devastated the Brotherhood and caused many members to leave the group, feeling they had lost their spiritual leader. But to honor John, the Corps members pushed through with the plan to break Larry out of prison. The Brotherhood paid the weather underground to carry out the plan and get Larry out of the country on September 13th, 1970, a little over a year after the death of John Griggs. The plan went on without a hitch, I mean, at least until Larry was left completely to his own devices. Afterward, the Brotherhood learned the police were determined to shut them down and they scattered to help protect the women and children within the group. The FBI even followed Travis Ashbrook to several other countries, but never caught him or a single member with any product. So they decided the only way that they were gonna get the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was by picking up the Hells Angels who had distributed the other LSD made by the same people who made Orange Sunshine. And they included the Brotherhood as conspirators in their drug trafficking indictment on August 3rd, 1972. Two days later, on August 5th, they executed search warrants in California, Oregon, and Hawaii. In total that day, 15 were arrested, while Carol Riggs, Michael Randall, Ricky, and Ronnie Bevan, and Travis Ashbrook were among those that got away and became fugitives. Directly after the arrests, the media completely disparaged the brotherhood's legacy what they had done what they worked for they they painted them as leary's drug cult that's an exact quote from one of the articles that i found and they gave leary credit for everything the brotherhood done they said that leary had incorporated the group leary had registered them as a religion leary owned mystic arts even though all those things happened before leary actually showed up and met the brotherhood in person you have to remember back then that the narrative that people ran with was that they were all just dirty lazy hippies and it just couldn't it wasn't comprehensible for people to believe that these people were college educated and uh, young men and women that ended up running one of the most prolific drug trafficking organizations in the world. Uh, So it was easier for them to go with the narrative that Timothy Leary had done it all, and they were basically just his army that did everything that he said. So the next time that you complain about the way that the media depicts millennials, remember you're not the first generation that they have done a hatchet job on. Now, by this time that the indictments had come down, Carol had moved on by marrying Michael Randall. So the two of them went on the run together with her children, five in total. Michael made a living after they went on the run making turquoise jewelry. They finally caught them about seven years later in Lyon, Colorado. Michael ended up serving five years, Travis Ashbrook, Continued to smuggle and was caught 11 years later on a flight to the Grand Canyon. He served 11 years for trafficking and tax evasion. Ricky Bevan was caught in Kabul in a sting when a connection of his completely flipped and ratted him out and set him up to be caught attempting to smuggle hash. He ended up never actually making it into Kabul because remember, he would have been hit with the death penalty had they actually caught him in the country smuggling. So once he got to the country, they picked him up on a fugitive warrant and extradited him back to the United States where he served 11 years. And Ron Bevan was caught 10 years later after he backed into a police car. He avoided jail time, but was given 36 months of probation. To give you an idea of the scope of their trafficking ring. They had also set up hash labs in Lebanon and they were able to get orange sunshine, not just across the entirety of the United States, but they were able to distribute it all over the entirety of Europe. The fact that they were able to make it in and out of Afghanistan with hash is amazing, especially considering the fact that they gave people the death penalty if they caught them. Um, I actually know someone whose father uh, sold, uh, pot from the brotherhood, uh, when he was much younger. So, and that was in New Jersey. So the reach of their drugs and, and the fact that I know someone who sold drugs that they bought from them is just really insane. And that shows you how much, um, they've had an impact. The Grateful Dead wrote songs about them. Uh, Glenn Fry wrote songs about them. If you look, you'll find that they're all over pop culture of the 60s and 70s. Now, next week, like I promised, we are going to look into Timothy Leary. In part two, we're going to explore whether Timothy Leary was a prophet or a prolific poser. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.